morning, Village Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors at The Village, and it's my privilege to open up the Word of God for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Book of Acts, Chapter 6. We're going to be starting in Verse 8, and um, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the Book of Acts. Last week, uh, Pastor David, a great sermon over the Labor Day weekend, reminding us about how God sees our work and maybe how we should see our work. And this morning, we'll hop back into our series in the Book of Acts. We're calling it Church Alive. And what we want to be talking about in this time together is, is what does a church that's alive look like? What does a church that's alive and thriving and vibrant and, and growing and, and effective, what kind of church does that church look like? Because that was the life of the early church, and we pray by God's grace that will also be part of the life of our church. Amen? And so here we are this morning in the book of Acts chapter 6, and we're going to have a chunk of scripture this morning Acts 6, 8 through 8, 3, and I know that may sound daunting. It feels like that to me standing in front of all of you a bit, Al. <laughs> but we're going to be talking this morning about a church alive through prophetic preaching. A church alive through prophetic preaching. Now, when you hear that statement, prophetic preaching, I don't know what comes to mind for you. Maybe you're thinking, wow, is this going to be the kind of thing where, like, you're going to start telling everyone, like, what happens in the future and, like, what my grandmother's name was and where I lived and all that sort of thing. And, and um, no, that's not going to be what this morning is going to be about. It's going to be about the kind of prophetic preaching that we most often see in the life of the early church. When the leaders actually open their mouths to preach the word of God to God's people. Prophetic preaching, I think, is this kind of preaching. It's preaching that, that is preaching in truth and grace, and wisdom, and power. It's preaching that comes in truth, grace, wisdom, and power. Now, maybe in your mind, you're thinking prophetic preaching is the kind of preaching that comes in truth. Yes, because prophetic preaching is about declaring truth, primarily about declaring truth. And maybe you have not associated grace with prophetic preaching, but it has to be part of prophetic preaching because in that kind of preaching, we are proclaiming not only the truth that's found in Jesus Christ, but the grace that we've all found in him. Amen? One person thinks so. <laughs> and that kind of preaching happens in wisdom. We're actually taking the truth of God's word, declaring the grace that God has shown us in Christ, understanding the truth of God's word, and then applying it to our daily lives. That's wisdom. And prophetic preaching always comes in power. It's empowered by the Spirit of God because only the Spirit of God could empower someone to open their mouth, declare the truth of God and the grace of God found in Christ, and take those truths and apply them in a way that's biblical wisdom, not just knowledge. Like this requires the power of God. It's empowered by the Spirit of God. And this is what we find this morning. Up to now, this kind of preaching in the book of Acts has only happened through the main leaders of the church. The main leaders of the church, they're called apostles. And maybe you think this is the way it should be. Yes, prophetic preaching should happen this way. It should happen in an Acts 1 through 6-ish kind of way. Where there are these main church leaders that get to stand up in front of everyone and open God's word and declare it to his people. And that's their primary role and that's what they do. And then there are other people in the church that, that they serve in the life of the church very humbly, most often behind the scenes in ways that people can't see. And there are some of those people that serve, that serve in an exceptional kind of way, and those people become deacons, community group leaders, staff members, ministry team leaders, 
And that's not for everyone. It's just for some people. But this is the way that it works. The main leaders get up. They open the word. They proclaim it. The rest of God's people serve in some kind of way. A little plug for the serve team email you got from Pastor David this week. We need people on serve teams. And the church at large, just as an aside, so I'll stand aside. The church at large has been experiencing this over the last year during this kind of COVID season. Everyone's life is so busy and, and it's hard to adjust. And so churches have seen a real drop in volunteers. Like we need volunteers in this season. And so I'd encourage you to respond to that email. So, so right now back here? Okay. Maybe you think this is the way it should be. Everyone's serving and they're super servants, they're deacons. I want to tell you that most of the church sees things this way. Most of the church in our, in our cultural context sees things this way, and they have for a long time. But I want to tell you this morning that Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through 8, 8 3, it, it blows this idea out of the water. It blows this idea out of the water as one of the typical servant-oriented people in the church, in the early church, he becomes a deacon because his service is recognized. And after he becomes a deacon, he actually opens his mouth with prophetic preaching that is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And one of the most compelling and convicting sermons at that. Now maybe you've seen where I'm going with this and you've already been thinking in your mind like, well that's nice for Stephen in the early church, but uh, that could and would never happen to me. You don't understand, like I'm a housewife. Like I do accounting, I like spreadsheets. I don't like being with people, I like my desk. I like my cubicle. Like, I like being in there. I don't want to stand up in front of all these people. You know, what, whatever it might be. I think the book of Acts was written in part to show us that this is the kind of stuff that happened in the life of the early church. And this is the kind of stuff that can and maybe should happen in our lives, in the life of our church. I want to tell you, this might happen unexpectedly. I mean, the last we see Stephen, he's waiting tables. The last we've seen him, just a few verses before, he's cleaning up tables and he's serving food to people. And now here he is preaching one of the most convicting, compelling, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. This happened like that. It might happen like this for any one of us. And because of that, I think we should all learn a little something about what prophetic preaching is. And I think the first thing we learned this morning is this, that prophetic preaching begins with humble serving. Prophetic preaching begins with humble serving. I think oftentimes prophetic preaching, that kind of preaching that's like fiery, truth-oriented, can be associated with pride. Because people believe they know the truth and they're proclaiming the truth in boldness and kind of with fire and vigor. And, and there's pride that can be associated with that. But the humble serving gives the kind of foundation of humility that prophetic preaching needs, which is a really, really good thing. Because prophetic preaching is preaching that is truth-filled, but it's also filled with grace and wisdom and power. See, the humble serving, we often, in those places, we often learn the grace and the wisdom associated with this kind of proclamation of God's word and of his gospel. And the prophetic preaching of Stephen in Acts 6, I uh, 7, I believe, has its roots in this humble serving in Acts chapter 6. And this is the picture we get in the Bible, right? We see this with Moses. Before he goes to be the leader of God's people, he's in the wilderness shepherding sheep in Midian for 40 years, you know. But before David 
you know, becomes the king, he's herding sheep out in the wilderness while his brothers are doing other things. Like, this is the way that this is learned. And I just want to take a moment as one of the pastors of this church to draw attention to this in the life of our church. Not, not to brag in any way, please don't misunderstand me, but I, I want to encourage you as a church. The pastors and preachers in our church are these kinds of men who, whose prophetic preaching has begun with humble serving. Pastor David was up here last week and preached a great sermon. And for a number of years in this church, like Pastor David was up in the youth room every Sunday doing things with the youth group students that were super meaningful. But many of you maybe never saw him or never knew the kind of gifting that God had given him to teach. Or maybe he did a lot of things behind the scenes. And the very humble serving, preparing him for prophetic preaching. Pastor Josh does this every week as he's dealing with children's ministry rosters and lists and problems and putting out fires and organizing things and doing his day job. And then he gets up here and he preaches sermons. And I know you enjoy listening to his sermons. I do as well. He's a prophetic preacher of God's word. Matt Bowman is the same way. Behind the scenes, oftentimes, when we had our church opened for a fire shelter, you know, Bowman was one of the pastors who was here the most all the time behind the scenes doing those things. And I could talk about Kennedy and Langdon and JT and Youngman. Darren Youngman opens his mouth in front of our church. It's because he's, he's been behind the scenes so many times doing so many things. JT Ayers encouraging and coaching so many of our community group leaders that you don't know or see. Sean Kennedy faithfully leading those community groups, sowing into the lives of people. The Langdons having countless people over their house to minister to them. You'll never see. I see because I live two doors down from them. I'm just telling you. The pastors in this church, when they open their mouth with prophetic preaching, it has begun with humble serving, and I hope that encourages you. The question this morning, I think, for all of us is what might we expect would come out of this kind of humble, servant-hearted posture? I think this, we see this in verse 8 where it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I think we learned this before he even opens his mouth in this section. We learned that when we are open to God with a humble, servant-hearted posture, he will invite us to all kinds of opportunities to serve, including prophetic preaching, and he will gift and he will empower us to do it. And this is what Paul later would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says about spiritual gifts, and these are all empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So right now, you might be saying, Matt, I know what God's willed for me. I have the gift of mercy. I have the gift of service. I'm a person that does things behind the scenes. Yeah, that's because God's apportioned to you to serve in this place, in this role, in that way, at that time. But God may actually gift you to open your mouth and proclaim his word to people like other people you see do it. You might never imagine yourself to do it. But he gives to everyone severally as he wills. He may gift you for these things. When God does that, in the life of a person who is humbly serving behind the scenes, who is open to God's spirit and has a humble, open posture, whom God begins to enable by his spirit to do incredible things, how do religious people typically respond to that? I think we see in verses 9 and 10. And some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cretans or Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
You see, re religious people resist ideas like this because it's not in line with, like, the religious system and the way things are supposed to go. No, we have an order. There's people that are in charge. There's a guy that does the teaching. Like, he usually does this way. We do these things. They do these things. We follow our religious rhythms that men have set up, not God. And, and then that's how everything goes. Religious people resist these kinds of ideas because it's out of order. It's not about sitting in the presence of Jesus and living a spirit-empowered life that comes out of that like Stephen was. It's about following the rules and the protocols and the procedures and the way it has always been done. Religious people don't know what to do with spiritual people. Religious people don't know what to do with spiritual people. What do you do with someone like that that's been sitting in the presence of Jesus, humble before him, open to him, humbly serving, and then, and then Jesus empowers that person. Like, what do you do if you're religious when those people begin to go outside the bounds? Well, eventually they kill them. They did to Jesus, and they will to Stephen. So what would these religious people do that don't like this? Verse 11, and they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. A little bit of truth, a lot of bit of lie. What might they do? They might do something extreme. If you're a spiritual person that steps out of the religious boundaries, what was Stephen's disposition in all of this? Look at verse 15. Love this. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Which for them as a Jewish audience is a direct and clear connection to Moses. And when Moses would go in to the tent of meeting where he would meet before God and he would come out and his face would glow, it would shine because he was in the presence of God. And this, this is Stephen's disposition because he likewise has been in the presence of God. It's undeniable that Luke is making this connection. And I think in it we see the second thing about prophetic preaching this morning is that prophetic preaching is grounded in time in the presence of God. Whether it's me or Pastor David or Pastor Josh or Pastor Matt or Pastor Sean or whoever stands up here on a Sunday morning or at the men's study or whatever else we do in the life of this church, Apprentice Academy, anytime someone proclaims God's word in this church, if we are not spending time in the presence of God, we have no business opening our mouths on behalf of God. And if that's true for us, I think it's true for all of us as God's people. If we're not sitting in the presence of God, we have no business opening our mouths on behalf of God. We need to sit in his presence to gain his heart. So prophetic preaching is grounded in, in humble serving and time in the presence of God. But what might that actually look like? What does prophetic preaching actually look like? Well, the good news is that we get actually a really good example this morning. It's a good example, and it's a long example. And so um, this morning, I'm going to do the scripture reading that we would have done previous that we normally do on Sunday morning because, honestly, I'm not sure we have time to do both this morning. And if you're a guest with us, we just, we just value all of the Bible, and so we, we read it all. You know? And so we're, we're going to read all of Stephen's sermon this morning. So 
if, if you've been around a while, you know how these kind of mornings go. And I just want to say, you know, you're welcome to Ron Van Pelt because he was scheduled to read scripture this morning. And Ron, I, I saved you. And, and you're welcome. You're welcome. Oh, there you are. We're going to read this sermon. And I'm basically going to read it through. And, and I'm going to pause a couple of times. And then we're going to learn a few lessons about prophetic preaching at the end. All right, would you look at it with me? Starting in verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God moved him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, that he would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after they shall come out of the worship, after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. See, God has created a people for himself. Stephen goes on to preach his sermon. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers to visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all the kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer and of Shechem. If you know your Bible, you know the story and you know where it's going, but for now we see that God will preserve a people for himself. God will preserve a people for himself. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in, the, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and in deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, why are you brothers? Why, are you, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, and they became the father of two nations. 
Everyone want to take a deep breath? All right, here we go. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and he did not dare look. And then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. God will deliver a people for himself. He will call a people to himself. He will set aside a people for himself. He will be faithful to those people. He will protect them. He will deliver them. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent both as both ruler and redeemer by the hands of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness in 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God will discipline a people for himself. Our fathers had set the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that had, he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua and they dis, dis, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who would build a house for him. But the Most High does not dwell in houses made of hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God will come to a people for himself. And Stephen ends his sermon with maybe not a good news statement, maybe a good news statement in some kind of way, but it's a pretty stiff one. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as did your fathers, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Many religious people will not want God for themselves.
God has called a people to himself, but many religious people will not want God for themselves. What what a sermon. (laughs) Just recounting the acts of God. What a sermon. What an ending. That truth-filled ending, that powerful ending, the wisdom that Stephen had to deliver the words this way. And in a sense, what a grace that is to people that would be otherwise blind to these things. This is a really long sermon. (laughs) And there's so much going on here in the history of God's people. I guess we could spend six or eight weeks here. But I think there's a few larger lessons we can learn about prophetic preaching. And and if after Acts 6, at any time, God could... God can invite you into this. I think maybe we should all learn a few more things about it. Third thing this morning, prophetic preaching is about God's story, not our story. Prophetic preaching is about God's story, not our story. Now listen, in a few weeks from now, we're going to be in the book of Acts. And we're going to see Saul get saved by Jesus. And through the book of Acts, we're going to see Saul, now Paul, we're going to see him give his testimony no less than three times. There's there's nothing wrong with giving your testimony. It's a beautiful way that that actually God uses um, the the experience that we've had with him to to help others to see how they could actually know who Jesus is as well. And and we do classes on this at our church to, to teach people how to do this. And before the team went to Albania. I, I did a class with them about the, the three-step process to sharing your personal testimony. Like, we're for these things, but, but I believe too often when we get an opportunity to proclaim something about the gospel to other people and we have this prophetic preaching moment where we can preach with truth and with grace and with wisdom and with power, we just default to sharing our testimony. Do you notice that's not what Stephen does? Surely Stephen could have shared his testimony in this moment. But in this moment, what he does is he talks about God's story, not just his own. Now, I understand that God touches his and his gods in some way when, when he comes to faith in Christ. I, I get all of that. But, but, but he focuses on the story of God. God calling a people to himself. You know, God being patient with those people and, and protecting them, but then allowing them to go into captivity and disciplining them and, and redeeming them and calling them out and, and speaking to them and coming to them in the person of Jesus. I mean, he goes through the whole thing. And, and if you're wondering what you would do in this scenario, if you had that opportunity to, to preach with, with truth and with grace and with wisdom and with power, we've, we've talked many times about this progression. Pastor Matt talked it, about it in Apprentice Academy this past Tuesday, if you were there. This creation and then fall and redemption and recreation kind of paradigm. See, in any time, any one of you could tell the story of God with these four things in mind. The idea that God created us in his image and likeness and, and for a relationship with him. The idea that, that we wanted something other than God. We wanted to, to be the God of our own life. As Tim Keller says, the de-godding of God. We wanted to be God ourselves, And so, so, yeah, sin entered the world when we sinned against God, disobeyed him, disregarded him. The whole plan of, of God from that point forward was to, was to redeem his people, that he would come to us. And we see all these little hints of it along the way until he comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus living that sinless life we could never live, dying the death that we should have died, and raising on the third day to give us a life we could never have. Otherwise, you may have heard it from me a hundred, maybe a thousand times over ten years. 
and then the recreation. That someday, God will, Jesus will return and God will recreate all these things the way that he intended in the beginning. And, and it will be amazing and God will make all things new again. And there's so much to touch in these four movements, but as you can see, you could touch it very quickly. And if you don't know these things or you haven't written them down, I would encourage you to do it. It's, this is how this happens. Because prophetic preaching is about God's story, not our story. We learned a fourth thing this morning, and it's this, that prophetic preaching is about God's word, not just our words. It's about God's word, not our words. Now, you might be thinking, well, Matt, <laughs> this looks like it's mostly about God's story. I mean, Stephen didn't, like, quote a lot of scripture. Now, he referred to a lot of things in scripture, that's for sure. But he did quote two. He grounded his sermon in Amos 5, 25 to 27. Did you bring me to slain beast to sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. He quoted and grounded in Psalm 11:4, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And Village Church, I want to tell you, like, that, that our conviction that prophetic preaching is about God's word, not our word, it's the reason why one of your pastors would stand up on this morning or another morning when I'm not here and another one of your pastors is here and someone does a scripture reading and reads a lot of scripture. And if you look at my notes, there are roughly 2,700 words that I will say this morning. Some of you are going, yeah, right. Yeah, right. There are 2,700 words. And you know, most of those words are just the Bible. Because we believe that there is something, just the public reading of Scripture, and God's Word is sufficient to accomplish the things that it wants. And it doesn't matter what I want to say. It matters what God wants to say. And so if we can focus on His Word and be grounded there. Prophetic preaching does this. It's, it's about God's Word, not about our Word. Pointing to His Word, grounding all of our thoughts in His words. Which is why when we open the Bible together as a church, we, we kind of go through the the Bible, and we sort of make a point because we, we want to say what we think the Bible's saying, and that's what we do. I believe that's what prophetic preaching does. Fifthly, prophetic preaching is always Christ-centered preaching. You knew this, right? It's always Christ-centered preaching. It has to be. It has to point to him because all of the Scripture does point to him. If we're grounding it in Scripture, it has to go to him because Jesus said it was all about him. You know, in this sermon in particular, we see different types of Jesus, right? We see Abraham and Joseph and Moses. We even see Stephen, who will eventually, at the end of this, show us something of Jesus Christ. We see Abraham, who is a sojourner, like Jesus was, who left heaven to come to earth. <laughs> we see Joseph. We see Joseph, who was, who was, who was sold and, and who God used to redeem his people. And we see this, this redemption story happening through the life of Joseph. We see Moses who delivered his people as Jesus delivers us. And eventually we're going to see Stephen as, as a man who lays down his life to proclaim the good news as Jesus laid down his life to do the same. We see all these types of Christ in this sermon. It's all meant to point to him. This is where Stephen was going. The entire point of the sermon is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. We learn two final things about prophetic preaching here at the end of this section. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or breathed his last. Stephen died. I think here we learned this morning that prophetic preaching preaches without fear of consequence. Prophetic preaching, it preaches without fear of consequence. It's preaching that is grounded and rooted in humble serving. There's humility to it, but there's, there's powerful truth proclamation as part of it as well. But it's grounded there. It's grounded in God's word. It's grounded in time before God and his presence. It's, it's grounded in, in, in a Christ-oriented view of the Bible pointing to Jesus and everything. It's grounded in God's story, not our story. It's like it's rooted and grounded in all these things. And so when it happens, prophetic preaching, it preaches without fear of consequence. And let me tell you, Stephen understood the consequences. I think sometimes maybe we see a story like this and we go, well, that was really unfortunate. Like, you know, Stephen's going out there and, you know, he's, he's boldly proclaiming the gospel and then, like, this horrible thing happens to him, like, out of left field. I said, no, no, this was not out of left field. The examples that Stephen had had of prophetic preaching were guys like John the Baptizer who got thrown in jail and had his head cut off because he proclaimed the truth to someone who didn't want to hear it. The example that Stephen has was, was a guy like Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came proclaiming the truth of God and was very, in fact, the truth of God embodied, who was betrayed and crucified, whipped, flogged, scorned, beaten, spat upon, mocked, Stephen's examples, Peter and John, who've been proclaiming these things and getting thrown into prison and beat and mistreated. Listen, when Stephen opened his mouth, he knew the potential consequences. This did not take him by surprise. He opened his mouth anyway. Prophetic preaching, it preaches without fear of consequence. And Village Church, I want to pause for a second and say, I know. <laughs> like, I I'm a little bit afraid sometimes of the consequence especially like beyond the walls and windows of this church. And like our culture is going in a direction where I, I know I'm the guy with the microphone, the handheld microphone this morning, right? I'm, I'm the guy with the microphone that stands up in front of everyone most often and proclaims these things. And our country and our culture is moving in a direction where like there are things that I might say while I hold this microphone that are like they're not, it's not going to go very well. I understand the consequences before I get there. And Prophetic preaching preaches without fear of those consequences. And I pray God gives me and gives us the grace to proclaim the truth about Jesus no matter what. I think this reminds us in Luke chapter 951 in Luke's previous book where it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Like, Jesus was intent on this. Jesus knew. This isn't a surprise to him. It wasn't a surprise to John the baptizer. It wasn't a surprise to... Peter and John, and it was not a surprise to Stephen. And it should not be a surprise to any of us. Look at the last few verses this morning. Eight, chapter 8, verse 1. We'll wrap up. 
And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I think here we, we learned the last thing about prophetic preaching this morning. It's this, that prophetic preaching is always used by God for his purposes. Always used by God for his purposes. Scripture tells us that the word of God does not come back void. It accomplishes the purpose for which God sends it. And, and nowhere do we see that, I think, more than in this kind of prophetic preaching. It's preaching with truth and with grace and with wisdom and with power. God always accomplishes what he wants through the prophetic preaching. And we already know what God wanted in the beginning of the book of Acts. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where, it said, where Jesus says, You will receive power. That's part of the prophetic preaching. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here in verses 1 through 3, we see, and they were scattered throughout the regions of what? Judea and Samaria. Like Jesus is using the prophetic preaching of his people, not one of his apostles, except the apostles. They were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Look, the apostles stayed put in Jerusalem. And what did everyone else do? They were scattered everywhere, living and walking and li living in relationship and, and doing their business and all that they did, and they were proclaiming the truth of the gospel. How did the gospel, how did it expand initially into all these places? By, by Peter's preaching? By the preaching of James the apostle? By the prophetic preaching of the guys that God's people always imagined would stand up and do it all the time? No. No, like today we're seeing Stephen. Next week we're going to see Philip. Like the way that it, God got his mission accomplished was through all of his people who spread to Jerusalem, not only from Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. It happened through all of God's people. Not just God's sort of main leaders. Village Church, I want, I want you to believe that about yourselves. I, I want you to believe that no matter how God's gifted you today, if he invites you into a moment where you're going to proclaim the truth about the gospel, that you'll be able to do it. You'll be able to proclaim the truth with grace and God will get, and, and wisdom to, to show how it connects to the life of the person you're talking to and, and, and all that's surrounded to it, and that God will empower you. You'll do it with power. I want you to believe that that's true about you, as true about you as it is about Stephen. This is one of the reasons why the story's here. I believe this is one of the reasons why the sermon's so long, and we have to spend so long here because we need to be reoriented in this thing. I pray that whatever you feel like you're gifted at today, when God gives you opportunity, you will be ready. And I think there's good news in this for us because, because Jesus has, has done so much to, for us already to, to come to us, to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to, to give us the spirit and to empower us. And I think that's connected to the good news this morning. It's this, that Jesus has proclaimed himself to us in truth and in grace and in wisdom and in power. And he invites each of us to proclaim him to others in the very same way. And I, 
And if you know Jesus, you know this. You know that he's proclaimed his truth to you. He's shown himself to you, proclaimed himself to you in truth and in grace and in wisdom and in power. And now it's your opportunity. It's your privilege. It's your responsibility as a Christian to proclaim those same things to other people, to proclaim him in truth and grace and wisdom and power. I believe you can, and I believe you will. Will you pray with me? Lord, it seems to me that this is the way that your church in the non-Western world is just exploding, just that your people believe that that you're going to give them opportunities to proclaim truth in grace and wisdom and with power, and they do. And you empower them for those things, and and I pray that you would empower this church for these things, that you would empower the people of the village church for these things, that wherever they are today and however much they think this is true or believe this about themselves, that they would believe about themselves today, that, that you can empower them for these things. And when these opportunities arise, that you would give them your grace, that you would give them um, courage and boldness to proclaim these things, the truth of your gospel. Lord, we thank you that you have first proclaimed these things to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've shown yourself to us in truth. And you've revealed to us your grace and you've given it to us and you've revealed yourself to us in wisdom and in power. And it's undeniable that we know you. And we thank you and we worship you. And we do it in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Amen.